नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवस पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा माय गेस्ट टुडे इज राघवन जगन्नाथन और एज एवरीबॉडी नोज हिम एज जकी जकी इज करेंटली द एडिटोरियल डायरेक्टर एट स्वराज ही इज आल्सो बीन यू नो अ प्रीवियस एडिटोरियल हेड एट फर्स्ट पोस्ट डॉट कॉम फोर्ब्स इंडिया फाइनेंशियल एक्सप्रेस बिजनेस टुडे ही इज आल्सो ऑन ऑथर ऑफ अ बुक इफ आई रिमेंबर द नेम ऑफ द बुक करेक्टली द जॉब्स क्राइसिस इन इंडिया इट इज माय एब्सोल्यूट प्लेजर टू वेलकम राघवन जगन्नाथ जग्गी थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट थैंक यू कुशल इट्स अ ग्रेट प्लेजर फॉर मी टू बी ऑन द पॉडकास्ट एंड आई एडमायर योर पॉडकास्ट आई मस्ट से आई डू वॉच मेनी ऑफ देम सो दो एट माय ओन टाइम नॉट इन लाइव फॉर्मेट सो आई लाइक देम Yeah, so so before before I start, you know we get into the beat I have been a huge admirer of your work it is very funny you must have found my first dm to you very funny when you followed me on twitter the first thing i told you good you follow me now i can contact yeah, yeah. you <laughs> yeah yeah no actually so, uh, i don't spend too much time on twitter i do spend 10 15 minutes a day to just to figure out what's going on or i do retweet and all i don't spend too much time on twitter because i think for peace of mind and clarity you need to stay away from excessive engagement there so so just to lay it out what is the you know why i called um, today's podcast an insider while remaining outside it's only fair before i ask you this question i think i laid down what i wanted to say so as someone you know who has been actively reading your work for such a long time now i mean i greatly admire your work and and i always notice this thing like you were obviously you were an insider like you're in the mainstream media you've spent so many years there but you always also had that kind of an outsider perspective so maybe i will first start by asking you this question was i wrong in my assessment no you're not wrong at all i think i didn't put it that way but i think now that you say it i can see that that's exactly what happened with me because um, out of the 45 years that i have spent in the media i would say 39 years were in the mainstream media and out of that 39 i would say nearly 30 was in the business media so business is mainstream in a slightly different way that is you focus on an arrow area where you do that but um, like i mean i have been in business newspapers editors there and other things so i always had my own sense of what um, uh, i wanted to say but as long as i was doing only business i could not speak uh, much about what i really felt about many things except occasionally i think it was in business standard and uh, uh, more later in dna where i decided i'll speak out on areas that are outside business and that is where i think um, the, the feeling of inside out uh, outside thing must have come in because there i started addressing political and social issues uh, once in say say i should write a weekly column in business standard so in the say three columns will be largely related to current business issues one will be on certain broader issues for example i think even 10 12 years back people were a little surprised that i took on amartya sen and showed him out to be a phony but the thing is like since it was one of those things i think people could allow me to say okay you can always say one thing that's discordant compared to the thing so it's only when i came to say got out of print and into digital let's say in first post then i could uh, sort of start speaking on a wider array of things and not just business because first post was not just about business and before that i was in dna where i could write my columns both business and other things so it sort of uh, uh, i think it made sense and uh, towards the end of my first post tenure when i think a corporate house uh, took a stake in the thing i decided that uh, it might be a good time to move out for the simple reason that sometimes you get branded you know i mean as that oh the, whatever you say in fact i had to take down one particular uh, comment that i had made about jetli and other things because people got back to the corporate house and told them that look you guys must have used this guy to say something against us so i took it down because it had nothing to do with them and then that was when i realized that i should move out of a situation where a corporate house is seen as controlling what is being said in your publication 
so regardless of whether they actually did something or not they'll get blamed for it if you wrote something positive they'll say ha ah, you become a lackey if you wrote something negative they'll say oh they must have some axe to grind that's why you wrote this so in a sense your whole uh, you know opinion becomes devalued and tainted so that is when i decided thought it's a good idea to move to something that's uh, very openly what it is and there is no need to Uh, be an insider or an outsider or an outsider in but yeah even today that format remains because while i write and largely spend a lot of time with swaraja i write uh, columns in uh, times of india and business standard which are as mainstream as they get so uh, i do feel the need to do that because i think i don't want to preach to the converted i want to also talk to the people who uh, may not be convinced of some of my stand but i think it's if it can be put in a Uh, rational and logical way they might see some point in it that's why i'm still inside out outside in it's all there <laughs> so jaggi let's let's unpack this a little bit i find this uh, bit very interesting which you said you you created a distinction between the print journalistic world and the digital journalistic world why do you think is the difference existing because if if i was to say the orthodoxy when it comes to the print world so is the orthodoxy in the print world far more left leaning than say the digital world no it's not so much that in mainstream media there are certain boundaries it's not about left and right is a very uh, sort of uh, uh, i would say narrow way of describing because even in the mainstream media uh, in the economic sphere there is a lot of right wing writing right uh, people who are pro markets and pro business and all those things used to happen so in all the pink dailies are hardly called them left wing right but in the mainstream paper uh, they they are a little more mixed uh, economy oriented and uh, a little more uh, let's say left liberal oriented in terms of their orientation so i think the difference in the mainstream media between uh, the pink papers or rather the business papers and the mainstream thing is mainstream were more centrist the business papers are obviously economically right but socially they were no different from the thing so that is how at least i would categorize them and in digital the what really happens is you can break certain boundaries because of the fact that you don't need to um, uh, first of all uh, re- retain a certain word count where you have to be very tightly packed in some 750 words or 800 words so you have to say things in a very small way in digital you can expand on a concept on an idea much more so it opens out and uh, i i found that it was uh, less of claustrophobic being in digital because it sort of allows you to speak your mind without constraints without feeling that somebody is looking over your shoulder so so at an editorial level so what do you think uh, in terms of content creation or content curation it, uh, i guess would be the right word uh, at a, as an editor uh, what w- what would be the differences be let's say in a print or a digital version well in print i think because the um, pressure from the establishment is much stronger meaning in the sense that um, let's say politicians or even judiciary or whatever it is tends to be uh, far more um, uh, what do you call uh responsive and uh, keep noting what happens in print but not so much in digital you know so like um, in print whatever is said i think people take it far more seriously and uh, for that reason the pressure from the establishment is much stronger there meaning not i when i say establishment i don't only mean the party in power the establishment is more than just the party in power there can be multiple parties at the state level who are not the parties in power at the center then there is the judiciary itself which is also establishment in its own way because the judiciary things it can never do anything in this country so i have certainly taken on the judiciary repeatedly but i have done it more in the digital space and less in the print space but uh, certainly i i have taken them on in the print space as well but as i said establishment pressures are much stronger in print that's very interesting because i actually would agree because i read you very regularly now on swaraj in fact i mean i i try not to miss anything you write and 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 i actually if now that you've said it i can immediately mentally recall that you are you know writing more about the judiciary now 
but that's fascinating so 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 why would the judiciary not so does the judiciary not care about the digital space in that sense no i think their problem is like um, as long as you're not uh, abusing them or uh, telling that uh, speaking about biases i mean they can't really go after you for criticizing them they can only go after you if you call them names or something like that so as long as you say that constitutionally i am criticizing you because of the stand you have taken in a particular judgment or what you have said in court needlessly so i do take them on so for that reason i don't think they can do much about it but uh, you never know because like uh, but their their judiciary is far more careful about two other areas general things that happen in social media and in tv they are far more uh, concerned about it because tv is highly influential and uh, social so is social media so the print they know largely will stay within boundaries when it comes to tv and all all kinds of people may say all kinds of things and same thing happens in social media so they are scared more of social media rather than digital media per se so in digital i think uh, that's what i feel uh, that's my sense of what the judiciary thinks that's very interesting so now i wanted to touch upon you know it, it was good you you know you when you said you joined swaraj you you were very honest to say you know i clearly know where swaraj lies everybody knows where i lie if i'm part of swaraj and and it's very explicit that okay yeah. we come from this point of view this world view these are our social and political and economic leanings we are very open about it but here's the catch you know uh i have never understood this in fact you know, i've spoken about it rahul roshan has spoken about it many people have so i wanted to and in fact i asked this question to shekhar gupta too that can a journalist be neutral and and for transparency i'll tell you what he said he said no one a journalist cannot be neutral how can a human being be neutral so but why do you think this this whole stick of neutrality is always bandied about and you know it, it's almost as if you know somebody from the mainstream always comes and tells us you know uh, uh and and it, i don't know sometimes i feel they infantilize the reader or something of that sort i find it very offensive when when you know the media comes and says you know listen to me i am your uncle i am your dada dadi i am your elder i am very neutral now you shut up and listen to me why do you think this attitude has been cultivated there i think they are scared of the fact that uh, the narrative has started moving in multiple directions now because a lot of people have found their voices not just on social media but digital media and to some extent even in print and television some television stations for example are getting bolder and taking up questions that earlier uh, they would never have you know so i think they realize that so the this whole nonsense about neutrality comes in because they want to say delegitimize other points of view you know so like when a new york times uh, does the same thing um, uh, you know the they say that look we are neutral all the other fellows are all wrong and things like that huh? so um, uh, uh, things like that happen so i think they uh, wear this cloak of neutrality in order to try and delegitimize others who they say oh you are very partisan they don't realize that they are only partisan to some uh, 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 in a they are equally partisan and they don't want to pretend that they are not you know and so what they do is they have a very simple technique that is for every 10 things you write in say one particular direction they will bring in one opposite view to say that uh, so, uh, see but i have also uh, thing so i am neutral because i have got one article called out by thing this happens in tv frequently actually they will bring some very cogent fellow from the left uh, liberal side and then they will get somebody to rant about hindutva let's say huh? okay so what did it so obviously the hindutva guy would have talked some nonsense or, or, i mean uh, somewhere he would have shouted about something and then automatically he gets discredited whereas the other guy will smile indulgently and say look we told you so these fellows are like that you know so uh, this thing is a very good technique that they adopt so this business of neutrality but you uh, i think people have learned to see through them i think but it, i won't say that the it's entirely so but by and large people are seeing it the very fact that they're losing traction and they need to thump their chest saying they are neutral suggests that people don't think so and why would you need but, to say you are neutral if people thought you were yeah uh, and what about the condescension where does that come from 
this sense of entitlement no i think um, see i think we always uh, the sense of entitlement come from a very simple thing for a long time media has been part of the establishment i mean now they talk about speaking truth to power and all that but they never really spoke truth to power whenever uh, there was a different power in place you know so what they actually did was uh, to um, sort of um, use an establishment view whether political or whatever and then just make some minor uh, riders and all to what is being said in order to claim that they are neutral but basically the uh, establishment could easily manipulate the media and it was not very difficult in fact where you got objectivity if you really want objectivity it's up to the reader that is you must read say swarajya you should also read a publication that is quite different from swarajya which may give a completely different point of view then you will get neutrality say somewhere between these two poles maybe some truth is there i mean i am not saying we supply any falsehood but we have a perspective now you may not have to accept that perspective as valid you if you really want the truth you should read three or four publications which say different things then you will get a closer approximation of the truth you know it's the blind man and the elephant issue hmm? yeah so so this is uh, now so you also mentioned not just media inside india media outside india but before that now now i know you may not even agree to it or you may want to avoid it and if you do it's okay i don't care but i have to talk about it so so was was there two phases in your career or were there two phases in your career and and have you seen the hostility towards you uh, rise post swarajya no um, yeah there are two phases the phases are of course still um, till around 2010 i would say i was largely in mainstream after that i moved to mainstream but in the digital space which is in first post and uh, money control and that kind of things and after that i have been entirely in um sorry swarajya since 2015 right so certainly the second phase i would say started in mainstream and ended in swarajya but that uh, but in after 2010 i find that people were open and they believed that Uh, i have crossed over to some side that they would not approve of and that uh, they started calling me sanghi this that all kinds of things so then the labeling started you know so definitely there was a shift in the way people want i mean earlier they used to think that occasionally when i said something that didn't didn't like they said okay he is allowed to say something 5% that doesn't agree disagree with us or whatever but rest of it by and large he conforms i mean and sticks to his business stories so that he where you are allowed to say most things but in political and social space you are not allowed to say most things and that is where i think the uh, branding and uh, relabeling started so yeah i mean just i think just like rahul roshan must have said you know how a sanghi who never went to a shaka kind of guy so uh, you you all begin saying that we all want to be fair to all parties and all that but somewhere along the line the branding itself brings you down and even if you say something different like i i mean now you get accused by both sides so it's fine which is all right because people will think what is this you have started criticizing this haridwar fellows who are shouting some nonsense and uh, then uh, what happens i think have you shifted to the uh, you know the left liberal caucus no it's not i mean you have a legitimate case but you have to make it legitimately you cannot uh, just uh, start some rant and expect me to back it you know? so that is there so uh, that's okay but by and large people now realizes realize that there has to be nuance in what you are saying whom you are criticizing and for what reason but the relabeling has unfortunately gone through and there is uh, in fact today i would say that most mainstream guys uh, especially in tv do not want to call me at all but uh that's of course before i started refusing all of them but um, <laughs> i mean uh, because i, I mean I, even those who are friendly to me i did really didn't want to be part of a guest list of 10 where you get to see 30 seconds of what you said and that to mangled out of shape so i think you do that but uh, say people like say an uh, an ndtv or um, you know those kind of place 
they don't really call you know and they, if they call you they will they've already determined which direction they're going to ask your question so that they stay safe from the areas where they know you have a cogent argument so they will basically for example focus on my book which talks about the job issue where they know that i have to be critical both of the government and of policies because jobs is not something that uh, i can say you have done fantastic job or anybody else has done that so they will stick to safe areas where they know that by and large i have to criticize whom they want to criticize i mean this happened if we actually notice even with arun shori you know as long as he was seen as having written books that went against certain uh, this thing huh? so um, uh, yeah so so, that, that, so that's what happened so this for example arun shori was considered a sanghi before uh the before the modi government came to power and they wouldn't touch him with a barge pole except in indian express where he was the editor they couldn't refuse him but once he got left out of the modi government and he started being critical every anti modi sort of uh, uh, tv channel used to have him regularly on his shows i mean so this is what happens so they don't call you for your real views they want to call you only if your well, views are likely to be uh, meeting their political angles i actually have uh, and uh, it's just something that has popped up as i was listening to you so let's say about you know i'm not even saying swaraj in general maybe swaraj print etc etc why shouldn't swaraj also be not considered now i mean uh, full disclosure i am a subscriber of swaraj not just now for a while now i've been a subscriber right. for a long time yeah, but thank you uh and and i don't think so it's a crime i think everybody should subscribe to swaraja by the way please go and subscribe uh mm-hmm. <laughs> but why should swaraja then also be now considered as a part of something like a digital mainstream now why should sorry is uh, repeat that question. why shouldn't swaraja also no. be considered to be a part of the digital mainstream now yeah yeah absolutely see if you actually look at it uh, digital has become mainstream if you look at um, uh, most of the even the so called mainstream newspapers they have now almost as much content coming on their digital websites those still they still uh, think a print guy still thinks print first and then digital but they are gradually changing i think only new york times made the very sharp shift to digital very fast but most other print still print uh, publications still have a print first main mindset which is changing very slowly but that change is happening and uh, as you know even in the case of say ndtv and all their big subscribers are all in digital meaning they are the same true uh, even for uh, anybody else so i would suspect that digital is indeed mainstream it's just that in terms of the opinion makers they still have a partiality towards print because it's a physical product in fact they don't even have a partiality towards tv though th- there is some visibility there because people do like their mug shots somewhere so tv they do go but in terms of respect they still think print is the ultimate you know so uh, in fact one of the things that helps us is because we have a print product which contains barely 5% of our editorial output uh, people think we are more legitimate some people i mean not all uh, the people who want to read us read us anywhere but uh, the people um, uh, say in the mainstream in the establishment in thing they think uh, that we are valid because you are in print so that that is very interesting so uh, i guess it's just uh, so i if i was to assess this it is more like a you know old habit and the establishment on average has uh, i don't know how to put it uh, elderly people elderly people have certain elderly people habits because the elites basically control i mean whether we like it or not the pareto principle really is true yeah, it is the 80 20 right. yeah. rule and society right. follows the pareto principle people who are in the elite class still follow the print medium so because the print medium exists so it's literally come down to that right yeah absolutely that's exactly what it is and uh, i think the power is still in the small group which is in a different age group it's all changing right now but i think in probably another 15 20 years the change over to digital as mainstream will uh, in terms of attitudes will that because the as the millennials come into positions of power through startups and they'll become billionaires in their own right they will not see print as something uh, like a god to be worshiped 
so a print will start disappearing from their uh, thing if i uh, in fact you know i can see that shift happening already my daughters hardly ever read a newspaper i mean mostly they get all their news in digital huh? and uh, by the time they come into their 40s and 50s uh, the transition from one generation to another uh, in terms of the power structure would have changed i mean mukesh uh, amani might still be reading a newspaper but by the time akash and uh, isha and others come into the power structure the whole thing would have changed so my guess is even in business that would change and they will realize that the power of digital is far far higher for the simple reason that it is not constrained by space or uh, delivery limitations today why do people buy newspapers the reason is not because of its authenticity because it is the only physical product that comes right into your house without you making an effort if tomorrow you had to go outside somewhere to a shop to buy a paper how many people will buy newspapers is the question which is why it is very vital for these print guys to deliver it to your home the minute home delivery stops so they start charging the full price for home delivery then you will suddenly find that the print circulation start dipping dramatically which is what happened abroad mostly because if you see the price of financial times now they are all costing 1 pound and 2 pounds can you imagine 150 bucks for a paper you know so and for a paper that is thinner than most uh, economic times or something like that right they are basically very thin now if you are paying that kind of price for delivery and for the news print costs and other things nobody will pick it up it's only because it's delivered at home at a very high cost to the publisher that people still are using print and as as the god of the physical world yeah so it's very interesting because in our own house now i see a slight change in habits with my parents i mean they still yeah. read the printed paper we had stopped yeah. in between my father basically has started it again because he still likes the feel of the newspaper yeah. i guess but it's very interesting when i see it in my own mom my mom actually now regularly reads swaraj print even up india so my mom has yeah. kind of you know done that shift i mean so it's a very funny thing you know she's on facebook so she's on facebook <laughs> to look at the photos of her friends and then suddenly yeah. swaraj and op india and all these things pop up and then she starts reading them she will yeah. click the link of the pages so it's it, it it's not like it's not changing but yes i still see the resistance like in my case i'll be very open i don't touch i don't even read a printed book and if i would prefer a kindle copy in that too like i a lot of times you know i even when i review books from authors they'll be like i will send you a signed copy as like my friend send me a soft copy i don't want a signed copy <laughs> I, because my house yeah. you know and it's not out of uh, disrespect to anyone i just you know because i read so much if i started keeping yeah. books my whole house will be only books and where will i sleep it it will come yeah, yeah. in that kind of a situation but now i want to pivot to another section of the media and this is where i also wanted to know so what is your opinion now of this you know the international media like uh, kanchanda had come a few days ago you know kanchanda wrote uh, that uh, piece in swarajya against bloomberg right uh, challenging yeah. the bloomberg narrative jaggi you've been here now for such a long time in this business or in this industry what the hell has happened to the new york times to the washington post to the wall street journals to the bloomberg you know how can they see i don't know how else to put it how can they be so blatantly wrong and in many cases lying yeah actually two things as i said in all um, see uh, if you forget out forget the fringe media in most countries the mainstream media has always been in bed with the establishment right so there is a deep connection to both the deep state and the um, uh, powerful uh, money interests in all these things uh, bloomberg is at the end of the day ultimately a, a byproduct of a business that uh, puts a box in traders rooms right same thing with new york times uh, i mean uh, the, i mean if you read, there is a book on the new york times which says that the new york times has always been pro establishment on the wrong side of history from backing the nazis to everything they always and the uh, george bush's uh, wmd campaign in iraq they have always been on the side of the establishment when it comes to that so in that sense it is not surprising because the us deep state 
does see uh, that the need to quiet, even though they themselves are battling all the evangelical, evangelicals and others at home, but abroad there is a huge congruence of interest in supporting them covertly by saying, oh, freedom of religion is being stamped out here, there. Though they're themselves in, in the US, they are at daggers drawn. They don't want these churches and all to have that kind of influence on their society. But they're happy to let them uh, uh, go and look for greener pastures. And so there's a congruence between the deep state and these various organizations that uh, operate uh, uh, on the social and religious side. So I think it works for them. And also these organizations are useful for them to gather data about us. Because when you are uh, deeply enmeshed into Indian society, it serves, they are able to give you the uh, a closer look at where the fault lines lie with us. And they keep driving the wedge in so that your fault lines actually deepen and they, allows you, they allow you to not just manage your narratives, but also to uh, manage your sense of defiance of their positions when it suits them. It's only now, in the last 5-10 years, when they realize that India just can't be pushed around. And it's not just because of Modi. You become a $3 trillion economy. In another 5 years, you will be 5 to $7 trillion, Right? So at that kind of scale, uh, you cannot uh, really say that you can't buy S-400 missiles from uh, uh, Russia or that you cannot have a separate deal with Iran. You know, so those things have started changing. But all the more reason why they feel it's necessary to drive the wedge in our own fault lines so that they maintain some degree of uh, leverage here. So these fellows all play the same game of the deep state and the uh, other softer side of the... Like, I just want to take this latest thing that has happened on social media. I don't know if you've read the comments of some South Asian experts on the uh -huh. whole Netaji statue thing. I mean... Just, you know, how to, they're like, oh, Netaji is a fascist. Okay, what's the evidence? Oh, who are you to say? I'm the expert. You're not supposed to ask evidence from me. Yeah. Uh, you're supposed to trust what I'm saying. I'm the trusted yeah. source. Um, you tell them about, oh, but Churchill and the Bengal famine and, you know, millions of Indians dying. Uh, no, but Churchill was not a racist. He was an imperialist. Netaji was a fascist. Where do you think we have messed up then? Uh, I, I don't see this kind of uh, freedom being taken in the China Studies Department. I don't see this kind of uh, freedom being taken in any other country, any other culture other than India. And, and I'll be very open, Hindu, basically, yeah. culture. They, they yeah, don't yeah, take yeah. such freedoms with Islam. They will not. They know the pushback, like the Council for North America in of uh, Muslims in North America or or whatever organizations that are there. They will push back. Uh, but uh, there has been a pivot now with the Jews also that they're very anti-Jew now. I don't know why, yeah. but it, it has changed. Very anti-Israel, very anti-Jewish. Uh, and, and with Hindus, it's as if they don't even count us. So, so yeah. my question to you is, I've always felt that whether it's the left or the right, the underlying uniting factor over there is the anti-pagan bias. It's nothing to do mm. with India. They're just anti-pagan. Yeah. And they think yeah. the only good pagan is a dead pagan. So do you yeah. think it has something to do or do you think it's something more or I'm totally wrong on this? No, no. It That is the basis. You see, the, the original assumption that we have the truth and the rest have only false ideas is central to uh, the Abrahamic religions. Not so much Judaism started the process, but they did not carry it to its logical end because uh, Jews only saw themselves as having their special God who gave them a special place in their thing. Whereas Christianity and all made it their business to make other people their part of their own labeling and business. I mean, Judaism they never sought to influence others. It only sort of kept to itself and said, ours is a special God and we get the promised land. Right? It's a direct connection between the God and us. But when Christianity and Islam came, they, their religion was not about talking to their own faithful. It became about how to impose our ideas on others. So um, if you read Bill Warner's books on Islam, so uh, it actually applies yeah. as much to Christianity. Basically, he says, see, um, uh, both these things, both these uh, faiths did not quite succeed 
as long as they were just faiths and religions who were concerned with their own flock. But what they did was they made a changeover to politics in order to uh, grab once uh, religion aligned with politics in these two faiths. Then they become all powerful. I mean, Christianity did it first by at the time of Constantine and others, the emperor and the faith uh, made a pact to back each other up. And uh, though they like the myth of being persecuted and all, but in the entire history of uh, pre-Christian era, I mean, in the before Christian became Christianity became a major faith, barely ten years were they actually persecuted during the time of Diocletian. You know, uh, they, the others are all myths. The myth of persecution is what they, but it helped their politics, so it helped. So they do that. Same in with Islam. So there has been absolutely no pretense that politics. Uh, and um, uh, thing uh, are uh, anyway misaligned. You know, Christianity at least makes a pretense saying that the uh, you know secular versus the temporal. But in Islam, there is no pretense whatsoever. They believe it's all the same, and so they have a right to decide what is this thing. So the and both have been against pagans, and with every newer version of the Abrahamic faith, it is becoming more extreme because that is what is happening. So anyway, I think that is the fundamental thing. The problem with Hindus is that we grew organically on this soil and we grew with diversity and an acceptance of diversity. So for us, trying to unite on even common interests becomes very difficult because we have not yet found a way to organize ourselves, uh, not just because of caste, but also because of uh, the fact that even our living caste outside, assuming we have managed to get rid of most of the evils of caste, or rather Varna Jati, as they say. You have not yet figured out how to fight for your common interests. And this has happened because we have had what SN Balagangadara says. We were we had to face two kinds of colonization, where one is the Islamic colonization, which was a religious colonization, and then was a British colonialism which sort of impacted us um, uh, and made us think that we have somehow got it all wrong. So uh, we have been denied our own sense of what we are about. And we try to think in the language and the mindset of the colonial power. You know, So you, uh, this is why I think we are not able to get our act together. We are not able to think strategically on how to defend your common interests without uh, necessarily getting angry about others. You know? This is what happens when you have this Hardwar conference. I mean, I can understand where they're coming from, but uh, uh, they are acting out of fear and shouting and screaming about some uh, some violence which they will never be able to ever bring into. <laughs> they will never be able to get ordinary people to follow them. You know, forget about uh, this thing. Whereas some people manage to get their violence acts done through socially. I mean, you can get a Kamlesh Tiwari killed without any state intervention, right? So that does not, uh, it is a good thing that Hindus don't think in those terms. But I think the ability to get our act together is not very strong. I mean, and we still have not found a way to work together hmm, on defending common interests. That is where, and our minds are still colonized. It, getting out of that colonial mindset is taking a lot. It's only now it's starting. I mean, if you saw Sai Deepak's book or Meenakshi Jain's books, and all that, they are realizing that there is a different way of experiencing our past and the present, which does not have to do with colonial interventions. And I think this process will take a generation. So till that time, we will be looking at ourselves through a colonial lens. But isn't it also an exaggeration at times? See, I'm very open about my criticism of JSD's yeah. book. Nothing personal yeah. against him. I've always yeah. been very open. I'm a critique of, uh, critic of decoloniality. But I want to talk yeah. about something else now. I want to stick to the media landscape here. That, yeah. so, And I have to play devil's advocate because it's only fair I ask you that question because here yeah. at least you know I don't come from a place of malice. Um, yeah. What if I was to ask you then? Well, you know, the Modi government now is in power for seven and a half years. So... Would you be an insider or an outsider? I mean, I don't know. Uh, do you see where I'm trying to come from? Yeah, yeah. No, I, again, it's both. Because one thing is, I do have some sympathy for this government and I do uh, praise it where I think it's worth praising it. But I also believe I have to be a critic because many things they do, I do not agree with. 
both on the economic side and on the political side and on the social side right i don't believe that um, they are doing the right things or they could have done much more than with the power they have so in that sense i am both insider and means i have not i have no animus towards them i don't have an axe to grind and say that they are always wrong i can praise them and they can and i can criticize them and i hope they see it that way because they do get upset if i criticize them but uh, while they are happy to accept the praise but i again i think you, you i think a genuine person has to be both inside and outside because if you can't criticize your own side then what is the point of being a friend if a friend can't tell you the truth who do you expect the enemy to tell you the truth because you are a well wisher and you want somebody to succeed and if you can't point out their faults and say look buddy you got to change here this is what you are doing wrong then you have to be a exactly what you say a devil's advocate with your own angel <laughs> so to say yeah and it is actually such a tragedy in india that i was thinking about this that because the opposition is so discredited in the eyes of the average public in india it's like you know um i always say this and i mean i got no issues rahul gandhi has damaged the credibility of opposition politics in india single handedly by his shenanigans and i say this yeah. with full responsibility as a concerned citizen of india these are my views i'm not attributing them to jaggi at all but these are my views but the point is that in such a situation who's going to i think i see myself criticizing the bjp most of the time i'm like you know yeah. we have to do it because we love our country right we love this yeah. country we want our country to progress so what if my natural question to so how do you think this government has been in the last seven and a half years if you were to look at a at an outsider view just as a citizen as as a person in the media what do you think this government has been doing so uh, i think in certain areas of see what i, I mean i'm trying to understand what they were trying to do one was the politically the bjp was trying to move more to the center left position because any party that wants to rule india needs to take the masses along so uh, i think that is what they've been trying to do and so one has been uh, clear let's see you can't be a complete economic right wing party and expect to be at the uh, getting 37% of the votes right the, the the i mean the elite constitutionally one or 2% so you have to be in that sense so so politically what they've done is right but i think the damage they have done is more in terms of the speed with which they tried to push many changes which um, especially this obsession with uh, corruption black money and all that that has been a huge damage because uh, these things have to be done over 10 15 years you cannot try and abolish corruption in one year or two years the reason why the telecom industry is in such thing is because compared to the upa corruption you wanted to show that you are totally uncorrupt but you made the industry so unviable that there are only three guys left and out of that one guy is tottering right so and ultimately you had to do what you should not have done in the made it such an expensive business in the first place similarly when you are going after black money you are effectively going to damage a part of the economy because in the real economy there is no difference between black money and white money it doesn't come with a different color right so black money used to boost consumption demand because a lot of it was floating around so a lot of people could buy things which used to come through the black route suppose i have a lot of black money as a politician i will give it to my constituents and friends to spend that will come back as uh, demand for my product, for business but when you clamp down on black money too hard too soon it will inevitably result in a slowdown because a 20 to 30% part of your for uh, economy has suddenly Uh, disappeared from the consumption and demand side yeah? so i think that is where they went wrong but most other things i think they would have uh, broadly right and also i think they took a very long time to figure out what was wrong with banks uh, uh, i mean you should have known that in 2014 people like the chief economic uh, i mean sorry the pm's uh, economic advisor like bibek devroy they all knew it and they could have easily told him in one day that first thing you have to do is fix banks but banks started getting fixed only after 2017 so again you went into a double balance sheet problem where banks were not lending corporates were in deep shit because of uh, uh, high debts so you had people deleveraging when you are deleveraging there can be no investment demand consumption demand died because you were stamping out corruption so and if you expect that the economy will not slow down when both investment and consumption are going down 
that was a fundamental economic mistake. So certain things have to be done slowly. They can't be done all of a sudden. So economically, that's where. Politically, I would say there are many things they could have done to, for example, um, help uh, generate the right uh, kind of equal rights for Hindus and other things. Whether through, I mean, making it clear that articles 25 to 30 are not meant only for the protection of minorities, that state cannot run temples. All these things are areas in which they could have started some process, but they have been, or for that matter, rewriting history to give it greater balance. Nobody says that the left view of history is wrong or totally wrong. All you are saying is that that is one way of looking at history, but there are other ways of looking at history. You know? And it is you will get a proper balance in history only when another side of history is also written about. And when you mix the two, you will get better history. But they didn't even begin the process. And they put guys who had no clue on history to run the Indian Council of Historical Research and others and sort of defamed themselves. So that's where they could have done more. All these things needed to be done, but they didn't have the gumption to take the bull by the horns and do it correctly. They, I think they were too, if I may use a word from Islam, they were too dimified into seeking uh, pats on the back from people who dislike them. That is, whether it is the guys outside or your own secular group or whatever it is. They were um, seeking a bad pat on the back from these guys who were anyway were keen to see them out. So when you're going to seek uh, <laughs> the approbation from the enemy, you will end up shooting yourself in the foot. Hmm? Yeah, that, I, I agree with you that, that that has been an unfortunate trait in the government. But do you think in a country as complex as India and in a country where you've had a single party and an ideology, more than that, an ideology, even when the Congress was not in power before the BJP option came, whatever used to come was pretty much Congress 2.0 in, yeah. in multiple ways. And even, you know, the behavioral patterns in the, in the bureaucracy and, and many other places of Indian society. In a situation like that, do you think it's that, wouldn't that it be so hard to change such an entrenched system? Yeah, in fact, that is where I think I have some empathy for what the government is trying to do. So you have to do certain things uh, change the system, little tweak a little at a time, so that over a period of time, the um, complexion of our polity and our uh, bureaucracy and all start changing. So it takes a long time. And I think uh, uh, one of the things where I would, in fact, like to applaud the government is they have taken a long-term view. But politics, unfortunately, you can't take that long-term view. You have your five years or maybe you're lucky you have 10 years. Now, in 2024, if, unless you are expecting to win again, uh, you have two years to do whatever you want to set off in motion right now, right? So after 24, if you are not in power, a lot of things you did might be rolled back if a different set or a wrong set of combination of political parties come to power and their priorities are something quite different, right? So I think uh, in politics, unfortunately, it's very difficult to take a long-term view on what needs to be done. I agree that what needs to be done is a generational project and not a five-year political tenure project. But you have to begin some of the processes in the right way. I mean, a simple thing, like say, uh, Hindu-Muslim issues are there in this country, whether you like it or not. Now, what stopped you from setting up a truth and reconciliation commission right on the day you were inaugurated in 2014? Right? The idea is not to demonize one community or the other, but to say yeah. that, look, these things happened in history. We have to acknowledge them and move on. And we uh, uh, can uh, negotiate a better deal among ourselves and do that. Instead of that, you thought that you could just uh, not do that, not tackle some issues head on. Once you set this kind of a move in process, it would be very difficult to reverse because uh, now everything comes out legitimately without necessarily... Uh, bad mouthing anybody in particular. So those are the things. What South Africa did, we could have done. I mean, you, you can't now you have a situation where one side is completely against the government, another side has no option but to defend the government no matter what it does. Right? So I think there are these certain long-term things they could have done, but they haven't. Yeah, in fact, uh, what do you make of this whole farm laws thing you also? I mean, I think the government could have, I mean, again, my view, not your, um, I think the government could have handled it better. I think the messaging was all over the place. I mean, what do yeah. you think? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is like that uh, advice which that old lady is supposed to have given to Chandragupta Maurya because he was attacking the core uh, instead of attacking the periphery, right? Uh, when you attack uh, a kingdom from the periphery, it's easier to deal with it because if you attack the core, then the kingdom actually fights back. So, and when you start eating rice, that old lady was telling her son, don't put your hand in the middle. Start at the end and take a little bite from the hot meal at the end, then you can slowly go to the center. So this is what the BJP should have done, whether on the farm laws or anything else. That is, start at the periphery. That is, first, for example, create the marketing structure whereby you establish the fact that you can actually get a better price by selling outside the mandis. I mean, you have done that with Amul. You have done that with many of the state milk cooperative federations, right? Nobody is actually buying or selling at MSP or anything in these things. But we are the world's biggest milk producer. People are very happy with the cooperative situation where an alternative. So establish the alternative before you make the law. Second thing is this business. It became very easy to criticize the center because all the MSPs are done by the center. Whereas agriculture is actually a state subject. So the states Absolutely. are happy to blame the center for everything. Whereas if you had said, I'm going to devolve the entire MSP structure to the states, you guys buy whatever you want for your food security system. I will only keep a small central buffer stock to help all states. If you had done that, then suddenly the states would have fallen apart because they would, each of them will fight in their own interest. So they will say, Madhya Pradesh will say, look, I need this MSP for my crop because I'm an agricultural state. Whereas uh, industrial state will say, look, I don't need it. You, I'll buy it at this rate from the market. Right? So each guy would got would have got money to do his own thing. And before you know, the MSP would have been a fact of history and farmers would actually would have been better off. So you have to attack some things from the periphery, not the center. And that is where we are going wrong in reforms. Except for 1991, where external bankruptcy enabled us to attack a problem at the center. In most other cases, when you are making big ticket reforms, start at the periphery. Start making the actual changes on the ground. See, what is China doing on the border? It's trying to grab five square yards at a time, right? So that you don't think it's a big thing. And before you know, the bagas are five kilometers inside where you are, right? So this is where I think uh, we need to understand how uh, start the salami slicing of reforms and present the farmers with the faith, the complete, where they realize that they are losing something great by opposing a reform. Then bring the reform as the last thing, as a coup de grace. So now, Jaggi, I also wanted to take a few questions from our uh, live viewers. Uh, so sure. maybe I'll start with this. Uh, so somebody has just said, this is a general question. I guess they are subscribers. Most of them are about Swarajya. So, it is, it is. <laughs> okay. so, so, so they said, uh, this is a general question. Did the readership of Swarajya fall after putting a paywall? Or how, and also they want to know, how do we convince more people to pay for quality digital journalism? Yeah, actually, see, this is a problem with all of media and not just uh, Swarajya. The, the minute you put a paywall or the minute you have to pay for a product, Automatically, it restricts your circulation because uh, you are, uh, only subscribers get to see after a point, right? So uh, it, it's a chicken or egg thing. I think, uh, in fact, the internet model has been done by the newspapers long before the internet model came where you try to make things free. A newspaper is essentially supplied to you free because uh, the four rupees or five rupees that you may pay for a newspaper is actually the cost less one fourth of the cost of printing and production and distribution. So basically, they're just recovering a part of the delivery costs. They are not recovering actual costs. So same thing happens uh, in this space. Uh, unfortunately, if you want to be viable, you need to be based more on subscriptions and less on... Once upon a time, actually, uh, advertising was a good source of revenue in digital. But today, I think Google and Facebook have conquered 80 to 90% of the advertising rupee. So you get only the crumbs that are left after that. And the cost of inventory has fallen so dramatically that you practically cannot get any value from advertising. You know, So you have to depend on subscription. And that's the model that most people ultimately have to follow. It restricts your growth or slows it down. It doesn't restrict your readership. It does restrict the growth of the readership. 
So, okay, someone has asked this question. I mean, I'm going to be as open and I'll read yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, these, these are, it's very interesting. These are all subscribers of Swarajya, by the way. So they care yeah. about Swarajya. So someone is yeah. like, in the West, political parties usually give better access to friendly media. Swarajya huh. is conservative in, in its leaning, but the conservative government does not give you the type of access they give to Hindu, Hindu Times of India. Where What is happening? <laughs> Somebody has asked this. No, uh, no, no, it's not entirely true. We do have access to quite a lot of uh, people in government, but it's largely because they respect us for what we do. But uh, I cannot deny the reality that most uh, politicians who are in their 50s and 60s um, actually prefer to be featured in the traditional media. This could be PTV or print. You know? So, And they're also trying to curry favor with this so-called secular crowd. So it works well for them because that's where they want to be. Like, I mean, if you see anybody in the government, if a Time magazine or uh, let's say even the New York Times want to interview them, they'll spread the red carpet. Right. So because I think it's part of the colonial mindset also. We think if a foreigner says something about us, it's more important than what we say about ourselves. The second thing is uh, most... uh, what I would call businessmen actually prefer to uh, invest in left-wing media for a simple reason, because it is the left that they are afraid of in terms of political attacks. So it makes sense for them to invest in left-wing or liberal media because it gives them protection. You ask yourself, who are the big investors in NDTV or Tarun Tejpal's thing? And you will find they are all big businessmen who are putting money there, you know. Why did they do so when these fellows are actually in a different political category, right? You will never find big business investing in Swarajya because they know that we are not anti-business. So they say, look, why should I pay you money in order to say what we enemy know you will do? So they prefer to get protection from the guys who will attack them rather than the guys who may give them a fair chance and who believe that they deserve a fair to be heard. So it's uh, unfortunate, but that's the way it is. But then I have to ask you a follow-up then. then. Isn't this such a terrible situation where then your literal existence is based on your nuisance value? But if your yeah. existence is based on your nuisance value, where does the truth lie in all of this then? Yeah, exactly. So in fact, if you see the business models of a lot of the regional dailies, and even some of the smaller marginal publications and for that matter tv channels comes from their ability to blackmail so like for example um, uh, i remember in one of the publications where i was working long back um, suddenly i found one of the directors come and say look why didn't you attack this guy this guy is not giving us ads okay now I found that very painful and I said, look, I can't do all that and you, I can't just do a hack job because he's not giving a hat. But uh, then they found somebody else who could do that story and get it done. But the point is, like this was not when I was an editor, but uh, at a lower level, right? But they approached, they did not approach the editor, they approached me and hoping that I will do their job, you know. So this is the problem. In fact, all the regional dailies, which usually have some political uh, connection. In fact, 31% of media is directly politically exposed, either owned by politically exposed persons or politicians or their relatives. So these people get their revenues from blackmail ability. So if they say, I will do this story against this businessman or this politicians, then they'll get advertising. That's how the advertising does not come because uh, of your readership, but because of what you can threaten to do against a specific politician or businessman. That's what happens. Uh, it's terrible. So, Jaggi, one last yeah. question because obviously um, uh, it's very funny. Even I am in the digital space. So, I mean, that yeah. I'm asking this question is, I think, uh, and and maybe I'll explain to you where I come from. And, 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 and I'll tell you why I'm asking you because I find Swarajya not doing it. And uh-huh. probably Swarajya being one of the few ones that doesn't do it in the print space, at least on, on online. So, I mean, I'm not making a judgment call, but I have consciously avoided doing clickbait on at least my channel on my podcast anybody who comes here 
यू नो आई आई गेट फनी ईमेल्स लाइक अरे कुशल भैया यू शुड यूज दिस टैग यू शुड डू दैट आई मीन लाइक यार मेरे को कितना बेवकूफ समझते हो हाउ स्टूपिड डू यू थिंक आई एम दैट आई वुड नॉट अंडरस्टैंड दैट इफ समथिंग इज ट्रेंडिंग ऑन सोशल मीडिया all i do is i create a youtube discussion on that and i'll get thousands and thousands and maybe and sometimes lakhs of views i'm not that yeah. stupid i, I have yeah. a ethical issue with it like yeah. i don't want to do that and so I, something that i have always loved about swaraj is that they literally look at issues holistically and i don't say this to make you happy i genuinely this is why i have swaraj you know i'm a subscriber because i like like that but we cannot escape the fact jaggi that the digital space is completely clickbait driven do you see any future of a non clickbait world no which is why i think subscriptions work on that basis that is why if people are willing to pay money for you to read then you don't have to deliver clickbait things but um, i will say one thing that we do have 5 or 10% of uh, say day to day news uh, uh, things which do serve as some clickbait so if something happens uh, in some area there is a short uh, news curation which may have an element of clickbait there but generally we don't do those stories on our own i mean we do just do a summary of the stories we found in uh, some other media reporting it we curate it and put it there just to keep abreast of the day's news but uh, 90% we don't do that huh? but i can't say that we don't do it 5% of the time because there is some amount of daily traction that we need even in order to get people to subscribe so you have to first get them there and then say there is this great content here so you guys uh, maybe you got drawn in for the wrong reasons but you can stay for the right reasons so jaggi before we wrap today's discussion up uh, maybe i'll do this so if i was a young kid i come up you know i have seen major journalists uh, you know doing this so what would your so this is my last question today so what is your advice to young kids who just want to learn about their society their country how should they go about consuming news as per your experience of which spans more than four decades so my suggestion is uh, to always read Uh, um, not just what you like reading or what you think you uh, believe in but read some of the stuff that you don't believe in then that will give you a good perspective the second thing is spend more time reading books than uh, just headline in fact spend more time listening to podcasts i would say or for that matter um, uh, things because for the simple reasons if you want to go deep into a subject a podcast or um, a straightforward uh, uh, you know deep dive into or even a debate for that matter between two people who have different points of view they actually give you depth and understanding that you will never get from a tv program or even a newspaper for that matter because the newspaper is limited by space and uh, you may serendipitously come into a particular story that you like but they cannot ever go into it at sufficient depth Uh, where if you really want to understand an issue you have to be in a digital space because i can write a 3000 word copy on a, uh, on an issue uh, trying to deal with as many if i were to write the same thing in a times of india or somewhere else i'll have to restrict myself to 800 850 words which means i can have to be cryptic in terms of explaining what i'm trying to say right or i'll explain only one aspect of it you know and i am not since i'm not running a serial there i can't explain all aspects of a story uh, in uh, this thing so my uh, advising i think you will get more knowledge from books and various youtube channels including i'm sure yours uh, which actually give you greater depth and of course digital publications of all kinds huh? because there is no limitation on space anybody who wants to know more can get more you know um, so that is where i think true learning happens because of the depth with which you are able to go if you are only interested in the survey anyway you can read something like in shorts or something you'll get out the headlines it's not a problem but uh, if you really want to understand an issue you must uh, do this 
great uh, you know jaggi uh, i have been reading you for such a long time so first of all i want to end today's podcast by once again thanking you for coming i i have deep admiration for you and your work <laughs> and and you know i i just want to take this opportunity to say thank you once again because you know people like you uh, you know your you know the way you write the way you present your points i mean at least you know a guy like me has learned a lot by reading you so once again thanks a lot for coming thank you kushal and i hope your uh, program goes from strength to strength your podcast because i find it very meaningful because what people want to understand issues you need to know what all people are thinking rather than just get the headline or clickbait you know you are more than that and that's good for us thank you very much it i uh, you know it, it means a lot to me coming from you so guys once again before we wrap today's discussion up and you know, i am i have been a subscriber of swaraj for a long long time uh, i i I always renew my subscription because I love uh, what they're doing over there. I would uh, request each and every one of you, whosoever is going to listen to this, doesn't matter if you're listening to this on YouTube or you're going to be listening to this on the audio platforms, whether iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Go and subscribe to Swaraj. Also, you know, you can go on Amazon and maybe buy Jaggi's book, uh, "The Jobs Crisis in India." It was a wonderful book. You'll learn a lot. if you have any questions you know you can always go on social media you can maybe ask him a question over there and if you like what i'm doing on the podcast please subscribe to the channel or if you are on the audio platform subscribe over there you can leave a review on itunes apparently that helps the rating of the podcast i don't understand half the things that happen in the digital space that's how <laughs> illiterate i am uh and if you want to go to the next step like jaggi said you know the sub- subscription model is the only model where you can protect the truth so if you want me to remain the way i am so you can become a member on youtube or you can become a patreon or support a supporter on patreon or you can buy the merch or send your donations to upi i'll see you guys next time with another interesting conversation until then namaste take care goodbye